Chapter 16, Part 7 of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Morgan Scorpion. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume 2 by John Bagnall Bury. Chapter 16, Part 7 Section 7 Interval of Peace and Preparations for War 346-1 BC Having gained for Macedonia the coveted place in the Religious League of Greece, Philip spent the next year or two in improving his small navy, in settling the administration of Thessaly, and in acquiring influence in the Peloponnesus. It may fairly be said that Thessaly was now joined to Macedonia by a personal union. The Thessalian cities elected the Macedonian king as their archon. The old name of Tagus, with its Phaean associates, was avoided. And he set four governors over the four great divisions of the country. South of the Corinthian Isthmus, Philip adopted the old policy of Thebes, offering friendship to those states which needed a friend to stand by them against Sparta. His negotiations gained him the adhesion of Messenia and Megalopolis, Elis and Argos. In Megalopolis they set up a bronze statue of Philip, while Argos had a special tie with Macedon, since she claimed to be the original home of the Macedonian kings. Nor did Philip yet despair of achieving his chief aim, the conciliation of Athens. No one knew how to bribe better than he, and we may be sure that he gave gold without stint to his Athenian supporters. The Athenians naturally preferred peace to war, and the political party which was favourable to friendly relations with Philip was still strong and might at any moment regain its power. The influence of the veteran Eubulus, who seems to have withdrawn somewhat from public affairs, was on that side. There were Eschines and Philocrates who had been active in the negotiation of the peace, and there was the incorruptible soldier Phocion, who was a remarkable figure at Athens, although he had no pretensions to eminence either as a soldier or as a statesman. He was marked among his contemporaries as an honest man, superior to all temptations of money, and as the Athenians always prized this superhuman integrity which few of them attempted to practice, they elected him forty-five times as strategos, though in military capacity he was no more than a respectable sergeant. But his strong common sense, which was impervious to oratory, and his exceptional probity made him a useful member of his party. There was one man in Athens who was firmly resolved that the peace should be no abiding peace, but a mere interval preparatory to war. Demosthenes, supported by Hyperides, Lycurgus, and others, spent the time in inflaming the wrath of his countrymen against Philip and in seeking to ruin his political antagonists. These years are therefore marked by a great struggle between the parties of war and peace. The influence of Demosthenes being most often in the ascendancy, and ultimately emerging victorious. After Philip's installation in the Amphictyonic Council, Demosthenes lost no time in striking a blow at his opponents. He brought an impeachment against Aschines for receiving bribes from the Macedonian king, and betraying the interests of Athens in the negotiations which preceded the peace. Men's minds were irritated by the triumph of Thebes, and Demosthenes might have succeeded in inducing them to make Aschines a scapegoat, if he had not committed a fatal mistake. He associated with himself in the prosecution, 
a certain Timarchus, whose early life had been devoted to vices which disqualified him from the rights of a citizen, and thus Asinis easily parried the stroke by bringing an action against Timarchus and submitting his private life to an annihilating exposure. The case of Demosthenes was thereby discredited, and he was obliged to let it drop for the time. A year or so later we find Demosthenes going forth on a mission to the cities of the Peloponnesus, to counteract by his oratory the influence of Philip. But his oratory roused no echoes, and Philip had good reason to complain of invectives which could hardly be justified from the lips of the representative of a power which was at peace and in alliance with Macedonia. An embassy came from Pella to remonstrate with the Athenians on their obstinate misconstruction of Macedonian motives and Demosthenes seized the occasion to deliver one of his uncompromising anti-Macedonian harangues. The basis of his reasoning in this Philippic, and in the political speeches which followed it during the next few years, is the proposition that Philip desired and proposed to destroy Athens. It was a proposition of which he had no valid proof, and it was actually untrue, as the sequel showed. We are not told what answer Athens sent to Pella, but it would seem that she complained of the terms of the recent peace as unfair, and specially mentioned her right to Halus. This island off the coast of Thessaly, a place of no value whatever, had belonged to the Athenian confederacy, but it had been seized by pirates, and the pirates had been expelled by Philip's soldiers. Philip sent an embassy with a courteous message, requesting Athens to propose emendations in the terms of the peace, and offering to give her Halonessus. But the place was of so little consequence to Athens or anyone, that it served as an excellent pretext for diplomatic wrangling, and Demosthenes could persuade the people to refuse Halonessus as it was offered, and demand that it should not be given, but given back. Besides the restoration of this worthless island, Athens made the proposal that the basis of the peace should be altered, and that each party should retain, not the territories which were actually in its possession when the treaty was concluded, but the territories which lawfully belonged to it. This proposal was preposterous. No peace can be made on a basis that leaves open all the debated questions which it is the object of the treaty to settle. Athens also complained of the Thracian fortresses which Philip captured and retained after the negotiation had begun. On this question Philip was legally in the right, but he offered to submit the matter to arbitration. Athens refused the offer on the plea that suitable arbiters could not be found. She thus showed that she was not in earnest. Her objection was as frivolous as her proposal. Demosthenes was responsible for the attitude of the city, and his intention was to keep up the friction with Macedonia and prevent any conciliation. The ascendancy which Demosthenes and his fellows had now won emboldened them to make a grand attack upon their political opponents, and thereby deal Philip a sensible blow. Hyperides brought an accusation of treachery against Philocrates, whose name was especially associated with the peace, and so formidable did the prospect of the trial seem, in the present state of popular opinion, that Philocrates fled, and he was condemned to death for contempt of court. Encouraged by this success, Demosthenes again took up his indictment against Aschines, but Aschines stood his ground, and one of the most famous political trials of antiquity was witnessed by the Athenian public we can still hear the two rivals scurrilously reviling each other and vying to deceive the judges, for they published their speeches after the trial, to instruct and perplex posterity. 
It is in these documents, burning with the passions of political hatred, that the modern historian, picking his doubtful way through lies and distortions of fact, has to discover the course of the negotiations which led to the peace of Philocrates. The speech of Demosthenes, in particular, is a triumph in the art of sophistry. No politician ever knew better than he how short is the memory of ordinary men for the political events which they have themselves watched and even helped to shape by their votes and opinions, and none ever traded more audaciously on this weakness of human nature. Hardly four years had passed since the peace was made, and Demosthenes, confident that his audience will remember nothing accurately, ventures likely to falsify facts which had so lately been notorious in the streets of Athens. Disclaiming all responsibility for a peace which he had himself worked hard to bring about but now seeks to discredit, he discovers that the Phocians were basely abandoned and imputes their fate to Aeschines. Against Aeschines there was in fact no case. The charge of receiving bribes from Philip was not supported by any actual evidence. The reply of Aeschines, which, as an oratorial achievement, is not inferior to that of his accuser, rings less falsely. Eubulus and Phocion men of the highest character, supported Eschines, but the public feeling was so hostile to Philip at this junction that the defendant barely escaped. That Eschines and many others of his party received money from Philip we may well believe, though the reiterations of Demosthenes are no evidence. But to receive money from Philip was one thing, and to betray the interests of Athens was another. It must be proved that a politician has sacrificed the manifest good of his country, or deserted his own political convictions, for a sackful of silver or gold, before he could be considered unconditionally a traitor. Public opinion in Greece thought no worse of a man for accepting a few talents from foreigners who were pleased with his policy, although those few public men, Demosthenes was not among them, who made it a rule never to accept an obol in connection with any political transaction, were respected as beings of superhuman virtue. Philip, who unlocked many a city by golden keys, was doubtless generous to the party whose programme was identical with his own interests, and it may be that Aeschines and others, who were not in affluent circumstances, would have been unable to devote themselves to public affairs if the king had not lined their wallets with gold. Meanwhile, Philip was seeking influence and intriguing in the countries which lay on either side of Attica, in Megara on the west and Euboea on the northeast. An attempt at a revolution in Megara was defeated, and the city allied itself with its neighbour and old enemy, Athens. But in Euboea the movements supported by Macedonia were more successful. Both in Eritrea and in Aureus oligarchies were established, really dependent on Philip. But in Chalcis, which from its strategic position was of greater importance, the democracy held its ground and sought an equal alliance with Athens, to which Athens gladly consented. Events in another quarter of Greece now caused a number of lesser Greek states to rally round Athens, and so bring within the field of near possibilities a league such as it was the dream of Demosthenes to form against Macedonia. By his marriage with an Epirot princess, it naturally devolved upon Philip to intervene in the struggles for the Epirot throne, which followed her father's death. He espoused the cause of her brother Alexander against her uncle Aribus, marched into the country, and established Alexander in the sovereignty. Epirus would now become dependent on Macedonia, and Philip saw in it a road to the Corinthian Gulf and a means of reaching Greece on the western side. His first step was to annex the region of Cassopia, between the rivers Acheron and Oropus, to the Epirote League of which his brother-in-law was head. 
and his eyes were then cast upon Ambracia, which stood as a barrier to the southward expansion of Epirus. But the place which he desired above all was doubtless Norpactus, the key to the Corinthian Gulf, now in the hands of the Achaeans. For encompassing his schemes in this quarter his natural allies were the Aetolians. They too coveted Nopactus, and would have held it for him, and they were the enemies of the Ambraciots and Acarnians, whom he hoped to render dependent upon Epirus. The evident designs of Philip alarmed all these peoples, and not only Ambracia, Acania, and Achaea, but Corcyria also sought the alliance of Athens. Philip, however, judged that the time had not come for further advances on this side, and some recent movements of Cursobleptes decided him to turn now to one of the greatest tasks which were imposed upon the expander of Macedonia, the subjugation of Thrace. Since the Persians had been beaten out of Europe, Thrace had been subject to native princes, some of whom, Teres, Sitalkes, Cotis, we have seen ruling the whole land from the Strymons to the Danube's mouth. It was now to pass again under the rule of a foreigner, but its new lords were Europeans who would lead Thracian soldiers to avenge upon Asia the oriental yoke which had been laid upon their ancestors. Of the Thracian expedition of Philip we know as little as of the Thracian expedition of Darius. Unlike Darius, he did not cross the rivers of the north or penetrate into any part of Scythia, but his campaign lasted ten months, and he spent a winter in the field in that wintry land, suffering from sickness as well as from the cold. In war Philip never spared himself either hardship or danger. Demosthenes, in later years, described his reckless energy, ruthless to himself, in a famous passage. To gain empire and power he had an eye knocked out, his collarbone broken, his arm and his leg maimed. He abandoned to fortune any part of his body she cared to take, so that honour and glory might be the portion of the rest. The Thracian king was dethroned, and his kingdom became a tributary province of Macedon. There is still in the land a city which bears Philip's name, and is the most conspicuous memorial of that great and obscure campaign. Philippopolis on the Hebrus was the chief of the cities which the conqueror built to maintain Macedonian influence in Thrace. This conquest was not an infringement of the peace, for Cursobleptes had not been admitted to the treaty as an ally of Athens but it affected nearly and seriously the position of Athens at the gates of the Black Sea. The Macedonian frontier was now advanced to the immediate neighbourhood of the Chersonese, and Athens had no longer Thracian princes to wield against Philip. The prospect did not escape Demosthenes, and he resolved to force on a war, though both his own country and Philip were averse to hostilities. Accordingly, he induced Athens to send a few ships and mercenaries under a swashbuckler named Diopethes, to protect her interest in the Chersonese. There had been some disputes with Cardia touching the lands of the Athenian outsettlers, and Diopethes lost no time in attacking Cardia. Now Cardia had been expressly recognised as an ally of Philip in the peace, and thus the action of Diopethes was a violation of the peace. The admiral followed up this aggression by invading some of Philip's Thracian possessions, and Philip then remonstrated at Athens. The admiral was so manifestly in the wrong that the Athenians were prepared to disown his conduct, but Demosthenes saved his tool and persuaded the people to sustain Diopethes. He followed up his speech on the Chersonese question, 
which scored this success by a loud call to war, the harangue known as the Third Philippic. The orator's thesis is that Philip, inveterately hostile to Athens and aiming at her destruction, is talking peace but acting war, and, when all the king's acts have been construed in this light, the perfectly sound conclusion is drawn that Athens should act at once. The proposals of Demosthenes are to make military preparations, to send forces to the Chersonese, and to organize an Hellenic league against the Macedonian wretch. Envoys were sent here and there to raise the alarm. Demosthenes himself proceeded to the Propontis and succeeded in detaching Byzantium and Perinthus from the Macedonian alliance. At the same time, Athenian troops were sent into Euboea. The governments on Aureus and Eritrea were overthrown, and these cities joined an independent Eubaeic League, of which the Synod met at Chalcis. The island was thus liberated from Macedon without becoming dependent on Athens. All these acts of hostility were committed without an overt breach of the peace between Athens and Philip, but the succession of Perinthus and Byzantium was a blow which Philip was not prepared to take with equanimity. When he had settled his Thracian province, he began the siege of Perinthus by land and sea. There was an Athenian squadron in the Hellespont which barred the passage of the Macedonian fleet, but Philip caused a diversion by sending land troops into the Chersonese, and by this stratagem got his ships successfully through. The siege of Perinthus marks, for eastern Greece, the beginning of those new developments of the art of besieging, which in Sicily had long since been practised with success. But all the engines and rams, the towers and the mines of Philip, failed to take Perinthus on its steep peninsular cliff. His blockade on the seaside was inefficient, and the besieged were furnished with stores and men from Byzantium. The Athenians were still holding aloof. They had addressed a remonstrance to Philip for violating the Chersonese and capturing some of their cruisers. Philip replied by a letter in which he rehearsed numerous acts of Athenian hostility to himself. But the decisive moment came when the king suddenly raised the siege of Perinthus and marched against Byzantium, hoping to capture it by the unexpectedness of his attack. Athens could no longer hold aloof when the key of the Bosphorus was in peril. The marble tablet on which the piece was inscribed was pulled down. It was openly war at last. A squadron under Ceres was sent to help Byzantium, and Phocion presently followed with a second fleet. Other help had come from Rhodes and Chios, and Philip was compelled to withdraw into Thrace, baffled in both his undertakings. It was the first triumph of Demosthenes over the arch-foe, and he received a public vote of thanks from the Athenian people. But one wonders that the naval power of Athens had not made itself more immediately and effectively felt. The Macedonian fleet was insignificant. It could inflict damage on merchant vessels or raid a coast, but it had no hold on the sea. The Athenian navy was three hundred strong and controlled the northern Aegean, and yet it seems that in these critical years there was no permanent squadron of any strength stationed in the Hellespont. Naval affairs had been by no means neglected. Eubulus had seen to the building of new shipsheds and had begun the construction of a magnificent arsenal close to the harbour of Zia, for the storage of the sails and rigging and tackle of the ships of war. But these luxuries were vain if the ships themselves were not efficient, and the group system on which the ships were furnished worked badly. Demosthenes had long ago desired to reform this system, which had been in force for seventeen years. The 1,200 richest citizens were liable to the triarchy, 
each trireme being charged on a small group, of which each member contributed the same proportion of the expense. If a large number of ships were required, this group might consist of five persons. If a small, of fifteen. This system bore hardly on the poorer members of the partnership, who had to pay the same amount as the richer, and some were ruined by the burden. But the great mischief was that these poorer members were often unable to pay their quota in time, and consequently the completion of the triremes was delayed. The influence of Demosthenes was now so enormous that he was able, in the face of bitter opposition from the wealthy class, to introduce a new law, by which the cost of furnishing the ships should fall on each citizen in proportion to his property. Thus a citizen whose property was rated as exceeding thirty talents, would henceforward, instead of having to pay one-fifth or perhaps one-fifteenth of the cost of a single trireme, be obliged to furnish three triremes and a boat. So popular was Demosthenes, by the success of Euboea and Byzantium, that he was able to accomplish a still greater feat. Years before he had cautiously hinted at the expediency of devoting the festival fund to military purposes. He now persuaded the Athenians to adopt this highly disagreeable measure. The building of the arsenal and shipsheds was interrupted also, in order to save the expenses. Philip in the meantime had again withdrawn into the wilds of Thrace. The Scythians near the mouth of the Danube had rebelled, and he crossed the Balkan range to crush them. In returning to Macedon through the lands of the Tribali, in the centre of the peninsula, he had some sore mountain warfare and was severely wounded in the leg. But Thrace was now safe, and he was free to deal with Greece. End of chapter 16, part 7